0: The garden party down here. We have our second group of uh, students for the summer. Uh, the f- first group went from July 1st to August 1st, and the second group from August 1st to September 1st. So we've had a very rich time up there. And down here, we've had endless numbers of meetings. So if anybody is missing a meeting you'd like to come to, we have lots of them you can join. At Great Val right now, we're talking about some fundamental uh, aspects of Buddhism, fundamental aspects of Dharma. So I thought it might be nice just to run over a few of those basics, and I'll try to talk about them from several different levels. First thing is that this practice is a practice of discovery. It's not a practice of doctrine. It's not a practice of dogma. It's a practice of discovery. And so the practice is based upon what do we observe when we really are looking carefully. What do we observe when we are seeing things with fresh eyes? So, for example, if we we're a scientist and we we're <clears throat> looking at a hand and we think, oh, there's a hand, same old hands eating all the time, you know, same old skin, getting age spots, you know, da, da da We don't discover anything new. But when we're looking at something without any opinion about it, without any view of it, without any preconceived notion, and we're looking directly at it, well, we can begin, dis- begin discovering things. When we're looking for what we already know, of course, what do we see? What we already know. But if we're not looking for what we already know, and we're just looking to see what is that, we can discover interesting things about ourselves, about our lives, about the world. So this practice is a practice of discovery at many different levels. It's a practice of discovery, not dogma. The the foundational teaching of of Buddhism and all of you who have been in you know you know. Religion 101, and you get to the Buddhist section, they always start talking about the four noble truths. And I think that that's actually a very uh, unskillful way to talk about them because we're talking about observation. And, the, and so it's all about observing what is, what our direct experience is about reality. It's not about some doctrine, I read it in a book, and therefore that's what the Buddha said, and therefore it's true, and you know. so what? It's about when we look directly at reality, what do we observe? And the first of the noble observations says, you know, everybody's got problems. Everybody has challenges. Everybody's got something they're dealing with. And we finally get it all together, and we get our relationship right, and we get the right amount of exercise, and we're eating correctly, and we've got our meditation practice down, we've got our education, we've got a good job, we've got a house, we've got our cars finally running, something goes wrong. Guaranteed. It's the way it is. No matter how well we get it together, something goes wrong. Something falls apart, something changes. It's true for the Queen of England. It's true for people in Somalia. It's true for people here. It is the common denominator of the human condition. This is not dogma. This is just, you know, is that true or not? Look around. It's look around for yourself. Is that true? Do people have difficulty? Do people have obstacles? Do people have challenges? By and large, I've never heard anyone who said, other than, yeah, I certainly have got them. Sometimes people fantasize that there are people out there, on television maybe or in the movies, who don't have as many problems as we do. But when you really get to know people, you know, the basic observation about humanity is it's difficult being a human being. And sometimes it's real difficult being a human being, and sometimes you know it's not so difficult being a human being. It's just a, a basic observation of dharma. Well, we come to meditation. We come to practice. We come to sit here and doing zazen, and we have that same intelligence. We want to observe what it's like being in this body. We're not looking for, okay, if I do it right, I'll get the experience that I want. We want to simply observe what's it like being in a human body. Sometimes it's difficult being in a human body. We want to be able to watch that. The second observation of Buddhism, is we have the capacity to make anything worse. We can make things as bad as we want to make them. We all have that capacity. You know, No matter what is going on with our own mind, we can make it ten times worse than it is. And all of us have exercised that option many times in our lives, I'm sure. How do we exercise that option? You know? I want it my way. It should be this way. It shouldn't be that way. It should be this way. It should be this way. I don't like that. I hate that. I want it this way. I want it this way. The stronger we think it's got to be my way, I don't care whether the water is flowing south. I want it to flow north. I don't care whether the sun goes down at whatever time it is. I want it to be light out. You know? the more strongly we hold our opinion about how things should be that is not in accord with the reality of the way things are, the more strongly we hold that, the more, more, more problems we cause ourselves. The second noble observation is everybody has the capacity to cause themselves and everybody else around them lots of problems. The technical thing is that when we're clinging we're grasping on my idea of how it should be. Yeah. She should be like this. He should do that. Yeah. They are the problem. And we're clinging to our ideas how human beings should be. And they're not like that. Yeah. It's more difficult. Ajahn Chah, a the, the great Theravadan teacher that we go through phases of Reading about the monastery, uh, there's a story about an American monk who was in Thailand and he was out working and he was hot and he was sweaty and he was irritable and he was complained. He was felt that they were just ignoring him. And Ajahn Chah came by with a nice smile on his face and said, hmm, I wonder who's causing all this suffering. Hmm. We cause ourselves so much suffering by not being willing to respond to be with what is. This is just an observation. It's not a dogma, it's an observation. Mm -hmm. We can look at our own life and our own mind. Mark Twain has a very nice thing, I think. He said something like, when I was 18, I thought my parents were really stupid and kind of uh, thick. But by the time I was 21, I was amazed at how much they had learned we are often like that. You know, we keep thinking, those people out there, those people out there, those people out there, he, she, it, them, they're the problem. Because they're not doing it my way. They're not acknowledging me the way I want to be acknowledged. They're not talking to me the way I want to be talked to. They're not seeing me the way I want to be seen. They're the problem. But as soon as we reverse that, as soon as we reverse that and say, I don't have to have everything my way, Maybe my way isn't even the best way in the world. Maybe if, were, if I ran the whole world, it would be just as much trouble as it is now. Maybe my view of things is somehow askew. As soon as we turn our view, the problem is not out there. The problem is how I'm viewing it. The problem is my own state of mind. The problem is my own consciousness. Then we have something we can actually do, we can actually work with. We can't change the nature of certain fanatics or the nature of volcanoes or tsunamis. But we can change our view. We can change this mind. We can reorient ourselves. We have enormous amount of power and capability to do that. I cannot, much as hard as I try, I cannot change chosen. But if I try to change my relationship to chosen by changing myself, that I can actually do occasionally. So this is the second observation of Dharma. The second observation of Dharma is we can mess things up as much as we want to mess them up. Completely up to us. But if we change our view and we begin to allow ourselves to work and to see and to work with the way things are, hmm, interesting things open up. Problems just disappear. They melt away. Because we actually worked with the source of the problem. The technical thing is it's clinging. you know, Clinging, grasping, clutching. I want things to stay the way they are. I want things to be the way I think they should be. I want things, I want things, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. You want know, what is inherently impermanent to not change, to be not be permanent, to be, to be permanent. And it's clinging is a better word than desire. You know, sometimes you read Buddhism 101, and they'll say desire. Or we say in our own our own chant, desire is inexhaustible. But you know, of course, we have to have desire. That's just part of the human being. That's not that's not the issue. But when we are clinging. Oh, we can make a mess for everybody. So the second noble observation is we don't have to be a victim. The second noble observation of Buddhism is we have a capacity for wisdom. We have a capacity to change. We have a capacity. And when we make that change, the possibility of liberation is there. There not in the sense of liberation of, okay, everything will be painted pink and I won't have to worry about the jarring colors anymore, but rather we make our change and we accept this is the way the world is. I'm going to respond to it as skillfully as I can respond to it. You know, some days hard, some days not so hard. Some days my body really hurts, some days my body doesn't really hurt. Some days I get along really well, some days don't get along really well. Some days are easy, some days are hard. As soon as we do that, the, the great swings that people have begin to even out. And we find a place of some stability. A place of, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Until we reach a point where our mind is actually stilled. And all those judgments and opinions begin to not be so important. And there's a kind of stability there that place we have the capacity for liberation we have the capacity for freedom we have the capacity the third of the or one of our bodhisattva vows beings are numberless have vowed to freedom it's actually a very interesting bodhisattva vow you know, the endless number of 7 billion people in this world of which we know, we know a few hundred at the most a few thousand maybe at the most I vow to save them all, I vow to free them all, I vow to liberate them all, I vow to That is not our ordinary state of mind. That's not how I'm gonna go around and fix everybody. One of the interpretations of that, of course, is I am going to liberate them all from my strong opinions. I'm gonna liberate them all from my judgments and evaluations that they should be like this. It's one 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 level. Of that. There are other deeper levels of that truth. And the fourth observation is, for we all again see this, is that when we're living skillfully, things go better. We're not lying. Things usually go better. We're not stealing. Things usually go better. When we're engaged in work that is uh, meaningful, you know, things usually go better. When we're engaged in trying to cultivate love and kindness, things usually go better. We're trying to bring wisdom to every situation; things usually go better. We're trying to practice patience and tolerance; things usually go better. Just an observation. We want to practice anger, irritation, fear, intolerance—you know, judgment, criticism—things don't usually go better. Anger brings anger; breeds anger. Fear breeds fear. So the fir- fourth of the observations is simply looking around and saying, "Well, if I'm observing." If I live skillfully, my life is not... It's crazy. So I'm not living skillfully. My mind is clear. I have more options. My mind is all cloudy and confused and dark. And so we come to practice. And so we come to Zazen. We come to meditation or whatever spiritual practice we're doing. There's lots of different kinds of spiritual practice. The very first part of any spiritual practice is the ability to actually concentrate, to actually have the mind be present in this moment as it is. Now, it's very interesting that we start off that practice with by simply following the breath, by, by just simply being aware. I mean, we're not ones doing the breath. The breath is breathing us. We are being breathed all the time. It has nothing to do with us. But the first part of the practice is, I will observe like a scientist. I will investigate this mystery of what is breathing me. What's the experience of being breathed? But one of the challenges, of course, is we sit down, we have our ideas, it should look like this. If I'm doing it right, I will experience this. If I'm doing it right, I will experience that. Therefore, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm going to experience that. And what happens? Suffering, dukkha, distress, Frustration. We sit down to do Zazen, to concentrate the mind, to bring the mind into one moment, one point, to observe things as they are, and not to try to make them as we think they should be. As soon as we do that, and we practice that in our meditation here, there's an enormous strain. Enormous strain begins to be released. enormous strain. The entrance into samadhi, you know, samadhi is one of the technical terms of the, the deep concentrated states of oneness of, of samadhi. The entrance into samadhi is when our attention and reality are both completely congruent in this moment. When we are able to hold our awareness on the way things are, on this great mystery of our own breath and this great mystery of our own body, just as it is with no waffling about it, we can begin to enter a place of concentration. And that place of concentration is the entrance gate to the other levels of dharma. So essentially, in practice, we were talking about fundamentals, and that's what we're saying to people up there. We have the essential practice of being present with what is. Then we have the essential practice of living ethically. Now, ethical living is not, I really want to go out and steal things, but... I am now going to impose not stealing things on top of my really desire to go out and steal things. And therefore, I mean, it's better than the opposite, frankly. But that isn't the deeper levels of practice. The deeper level of practice is, can I be really satisfied with my experience here? When I'm really deeply satisfied with the way things are, I don't want to go out and steal something else. And therefore, it's this deep satisfaction of being in the present moment is naturally in accord with the precepts, naturally in accord with silla, naturally in accord with a skillful way of living. So we live skillfully, we live with precepts, we live ethically, which is in accord with the way things are in this moment. Precepts come out of wisdom. They don't make wisdom. And then, we have precepts, we have practice, and then we have, of course, a compassionate heart. There's a kind of wisdom that is cool, that is neutral, that just... Everything comes from the same source. Everything has the same valence. Everything has the same charge. All things arise in this moment, in this instant. All past, present, and future. All arises right here, right now, from the same stuff. It's made from the same thing. It's all one. But if you see that, and there's a, there's a direct experience of seeing that, it can become kind of cold because cold and warm are still just the same thing in that place. So being a human being, being in part in this skin in this body, we can take that particular wisdom of everything arises from the same source, everything is the same valence, everything is neutral, and we warm it up for our own practice and life of loving kindness. We warm it up being a human being. We warm it up with our own heart. And we do our best to function skillfully. This is the foundation of Dharma. Now we kind of shift levels to a different foundation of Dharma. When we say being in the present moment, when we say pay attention, we say really look at what is, it's not out there. That which sees, the eye that sees, the mind that is aware, aren't separate. They're one continuous thing. So if we turn our attention directly to consciousness, directly to awareness, directly to the mind that is aware, and we practice being aware of awareness, and we practice Awareness that infuses all things because there is nothing that comes into our awareness that's not imbued with our awareness. If we turn our attention right to the very essential point of our awareness and we open our eyes and open our being and we see everything that happens as the boundless expression of the Dharmakaya, as the boundless expression of the truth, that's a different level of practice. That level of practice leaves nothing out. That level of practice includes. Precepts, includes the breath, includes challenges, includes our difficulties. That level of practice, everything is whole, is complete, lacking nothing, and it's just the great mystery. Just the great mystery, always revealing itself. It's the great mystery in action. So as we practice, we have different different kinds of Buddhism, different kinds of practice that are appropriate at different times in our life. We have the fundamental practice of living ethically, We have the fundamental practice of trying to tame this wild, crazy mind. We have the fundamental practice of being uh, completely present with what is and seeing directly into things that we do not know what are. We have the fundamental practice of seeing the spaciousness of our own being. We have the fundamental practice of seeing that the self that we think we are cannot be found. We have the fundamental practice of turning our mind to a mind's awareness itself. We have the fundamental practice of seeing all things as nothing but the activity of the great mystery. So, a little bit of basic dharma, a little bit of view of the path. It's all kind of interesting. Well, the nice thing about the view of the path, this last view, is There's no mistakes. You know, the biggest, darkest hole we fall into is just a matter of learning. There's a nice con. Every day is a good day. Unman said to his monks, "Um, I don't ask you about before the 15th of the month. I don't ask you about the 15th of the month. What can you say? Nobody could answer. Unman said, every day is a good day. Well, what makes every day a good day? I mean, obviously, we all have some pretty terrible days. What makes every day a good day? Well, one thing that makes everything a good day is if it's all something to be learned. Oh yeah, it was really a lousy day, but I really learned a lot today. Oh, that's the, the, just the fact that we want to learn from everything suddenly transforms it. The fact that we can begin to see everything, the good, the bad, the easy, the hard, all coming from the same source, all composed of the same material, that also shifts it makes every day a good day. Every practice a good practice. And lastly, if we truly and really have loving kindness for this body and this life right here, we have deep, deep, deep respect for our own being right here and the circumstances of our being right now, that every single thing that happened in our entire life led right up to that moment. And every single thing that led up to that moment must be respected, just as we respect that moment. And so, by seeing this level of reality, we transform everything that's happened in the past into education, into learning, into necessity, into respect, into appreciation, even as we respect and appreciate and respond appropriately to what is happening right now. So... Lots of threads of dharma.